Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. This time we have Rajat Malhotra. Rajat I've known for about six or seven years. He's become a friend. I've learned a huge amount from him. Let's talk through his journey and the vast amount of angel investing he's done. So Rajat, talk about your background. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm Rajat Malhotra, as you said. I have a background as a lawyer. I practiced EU and competition law uh, for a decade or so, a valuable commodity these days, although I'm glad not to be doing it. Ren Capital, which I'm now the managing partner of, which is a which is an angel investor. My partner Richard and I founded it in 2011. It's our seven-year anniversary, I think, pretty much to the day. So what led you to do that? I know that you were working in Brussels before you came back to London. What led you to go into angel investing? So it was a chance conversation in a pub, more than anything. Pub in Hammersmith, I don't remember the name, so I can't uh, direct people to it. So Richard is a friend of mine from university. We both studied at Cambridge together, and the germ of the idea was definitely his. And the conversation was roughly along the lines of, I think this would be fun. You're always telling me you're bored or you want to change. And I think it's going to involve lots of people. I don't like people that much. So how about you? How about we, you know, we do it together. We go into partnership and you kind of front it and and run the thing. And, you know, thought about it, pondered it. Didn't know, it's worth saying, didn't know anything about angel investing. Didn't really know it existed, you know, very much from scratch. So researched it, thought about it discussed it a lot more with Richard and over a period of months I think I think the conversation was a kind of six-month conversation roughly thought yeah this might be fun and Richard's not in the room here though I do know him you have a law background he has a technical background can we just give a little bit of flavor of that and how he contributes to you too as an angel yes so we're very much a duo we're absolutely a partnership a team we make all our decisions together unanimously to invest or not not to invest. He is a mathematician primarily by background, but he's just one of these exceptional, brilliant people. I think of him as a polymath. He's an exceptional computer programmer as well as mathematician. He's got a background in trading and statistics and that sort of thing. He is Ren's science brain, as we'll come to, I'm sure, later. Ren's primarily a science investor, and he provides that sort of basic science grounding that we need and whilst I front Ren on a day-to-day basis he meets all of the companies with me that have kind of made it through our, our filtering process as I said we make all of our investment decisions together we make all of our follow-on decisions together and we're quite disciplined actually about 
reassessing companies for follow-ons and he's he's fully involved in that process but i am the day-to-day you know liaising with companies networking finding deal flow negotiating terms dealing with other investors i guess all of the topics we're going to talk about anyway he has a he has a day job doesn't he he has a he runs a business and a successful business here in london that's right yeah okay is it in the public domain? How much you invest per year? Are you... It's not in the public domain. Okay. We are, I think it's fair to say, one of the larger angel investors around in the country. We have made 43 investments in seven years. So 43 investments you've made and you've lost how many? And how many have you had positive exits? So we've had three positive exits and we have including insolvency and those that we have kind of in terms of our own balance sheet you know, written off to zero or, or let go of 10. That's not an exact science because, you know, as you know, these things can sometimes come back from the depths of despair. But at the moment, I'd say... Same as me. I've had four exits and, and 10, 10 failures so far. So, OK. So tell me, first of all, you, when you decided to do it together, clearly you had no experience of angel investing. You presumably talk to people. How did you start finding the deals? So I, as you say, didn't know anyone and, you know, would be the first to admit, especially hindsight's a wonderful thing. Naive, didn't have a lot of knowledge, etc. So Ren very much started at the face-to-face angel networks because by very nature of their business model, they work on new members coming in. So actually you'll always be welcomed as a potential new investor to those kinds of networks. I remember particularly got a warm welcome and and still attend London Business Angels. They're not called that anymore, actually, are they? They've got a new name. They have. Um, Whose name I forget. So I did the shoe leather thing, trod the pavement and went to lots and lots of angel network meetings. And people are generally pretty open and friendly. I'm quite a sort of relatively gregarious, you know, foot forward type of person. So didn't find it difficult to strike up conversations and talk to people. And actually, as I reflect, the folks running those various networks were also pretty generous, actually, with introducing me to other investors. And the other area where, or source, where I got some original introductions back at the beginning was from the firm of lawyers and the firm of accountants who helped us to sort of set get set up rent. Set up the entity. I think London Business Angels is now called Newable. From that's memory. it, Newable. Um, that's right. So tell me about the first deal, because this is where you have to suddenly, and you're a lawyer in background, you have to take some risk. How did you find it and get comfortable before you wrote that cheque? I mean, maybe that's why I'm possibly more suited to this than being a lawyer. I haven't, I've never been massively... You know, risk averse. I mean, I remember as a lawyer, I used to get, you know, told off by my partners because I'd want to give clients commercial advice. I remember a particular instance, I won't name the bank, but it's kind of worthy anecdote. So we were giving some very early advice to what major household name bank on this whole issue of whether overdraft fees and credit card penalty fees were going to be illegal or not. We were giving an advice. And I remember saying, and I got in a lot of trouble afterwards, I remember saying to this guy who was head of risk management or whatever it was, just scrap them, make it your USP. 
you know, make it your competitive advantage. You know, don't spend millions of pounds on legal fees. <laughs> Scrap them and make a big song and dance about it. Right. So I guess I think, so the point of that story is that I guess I've never been in that sense a typical lawyer. And probably what um, perhaps tipped me over the edge was when I was discussing Wren with Richard in that six-month period at the last law firm I was at, we had one of those Briggs-Myers personality assessment things. The entire team came out blue or green or some other kind of introvert, get away from me, I don't want to talk to you kind of thing. And I was red. Right. So, you know. (laughs) Well, it's almost the writing on the wall of you being a lawyer, possibly, at that point. Yeah. So the first deal, what was that? Do you remember which? So the first company we closed an investment in, still going today, it's a company called Camstent. And how did we get comfortable? Well, so we didn't lead that. There were other angels involved who'd, you know, done one or two deals before. But to some extent, I think Richard and I felt that you just have to do one. Mm. You can mitigate your risk. It was compared to the amounts that we usually invest now as a first check in a new company. It was relatively small. So mitigated risk that way. But you've just got to do one. I mean, when I talk to new angels or people who are saying, you know, should I get into it? What should I be wary about? Human beings, I don't think, learn that well just from being told things. You know, I can tell somebody who comes to meet me 12 things you mustn't do or 13 things that, you know, silly, foolish mistakes, you know, banana skins to watch out for. The reality about people is to really drive those messages home and to actually take the learnings, you have to make some of those mistakes. So I think it's not so much about how did we get comfortable to do a deal. It was an understanding that to really learn, you just have to do one. Yes, okay. In fact, I'm invested in that as well. It's a medtech business, which takes a long time, and it's still alive, which is great news, isn't it? Yes. You know, how well it's doing, we shouldn't discuss on this podcast, but it's still alive. Okay, so that was your first one. And how many months or weeks after was the second one? I'm just looking at a feel for the momentum that you built up. So we went for it in the first year. So we started in January 2011, hence it's the kind of seven-year anniversary right about now. And we did eight deals in that first year, and it remains the largest number of deals we've ever done in a single calendar year. Now, I think in terms of of learning for your listeners, that was too many. I mean, we threw ourselves in probably too much. Was that too many in the first year or was that too many in any year? Because there's a big difference there. Too many in the first year. Ren typically does six new deals a year. Right. This 2017, it was five. 2016 it was seven and I think the three years before that it had been six on the nose so I think it was too many for the first year but in terms of our model and and the way we structure things it's very much about the right number but in the first year when as I say particularly with hindsight there was not much knowledge there it was too many now I think we may get lucky with two or three out of that first cohort but there are There's some failed companies already in there. I'm sure there are. Yeah. More importantly than the fact that there are some failed companies in there is the fact that there are some companies that were clearly 
uninvestable. Right. You know, horrible. With hindsight. With hindsight. But the point about eight being too many in the first year is that just by being calmer or a bit more careful or whatever the right word is, we would have avoided a couple of those. That's an important part, and we'll come back to that, is what you've learned in those seven years. Okay, so can we just talk about what you invest in? Now, we've, as I say, we've got about a dozen in common, so we obviously have got similar tastes. So, but you've, you've done things I wouldn't even dream of doing, including your good exit last year. So talk through, A, what you were investing then, and B, how that's developed to what you're doing now. So that's a really, it's a good question, and it's an important part of our story. So we started off absolutely generalist. We had, again, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And this was something that we did not give enough thought to at the beginning, and I regret. We started thinking that this was notionally a good idea and notionally a place where value could be found and returns created, but we did not have a meaningful investment thesis. We do now, and I realize with experience that having a meaningful investment thesis is very important because it really allows you to focus. It gives you a critical framework against which to test your thinking. And it drives efficiency too, because rightly or wrongly, some things will fall out of your thesis, out of your criteria. And that just helps you filter. And I don't worry about that too much because, as I say to a lot of people, Angel investing is about your positive predictive value, not your negative predictive value. And what I mean by that primarily is the good ones that you happen to have said no to don't matter a jot. What matters is the proportion of companies that you decide to invest in that turn out to be good. Yeah, we'll put something in the show notes about that because that's a very interesting point. And I missed SwiftKey. You weren't around at SwiftKey. That's a prime example of that. You know, and, you know, we have several, you know, colleagues, acquaintances in common who even now kind of tear their hair out about, I think the classic one is we know several people who said no to DeepMind mm. or missed DeepMind or whatever the case may be. And, you know, I always tell them over a beer, doesn't matter. Mm. Doesn't matter a jot. You know, if you think about choosing to invest or not invest as the analogy being a diagnostic test. You know, this is not, it's not a kind of rule out negative, we're not predicting negatives, we're trying to predict positives, positives being good companies. Mm. So it's not about the ones you say no to. Now I know one of your investments that failed, which I actually used to buy, was a FMCG, it was, it was a drinks brand. That doesn't fit in with deep tech at all. So presumably the deep tech has crept in over yes. time, has it? So. Ren, as I say, so we started off generalist. We had no particular thesis. We invested in all kinds of things, including a, two drinks brands, both of which failed. And by the end of year two, certainly by year three, we had developed a distinct investment thesis. And in terms of the sectoral focus of that thesis, the headline is science, engineering, and software. Which I'm surprised you didn't do to start with, because Richard's background is strongly that. And your background isn't that relevant in terms of choosing which investments. It's a product of those things we spoke about earlier. It's a product of who we knew, where we were getting our deal flow from. So if you go to you know, your Commodore Garden Angel Network, the deal flow is fairly generalist. 
And as you know and I know, the better quality deals, for example, in science, engineering and software, for example, you know, good companies being spun out of the better universities, those companies don't need to tout their wares around most of the angel networks with all due respect to angel networks. And so accessing those deals requires network, requires relationship, it requires credibility in the market. And so it was a natural process as we acquired those things, network, credibility in the market, then we were able to access and have that deal flow come to us. And so there was a natural progression, I should say, in the sources of our deal flow, and that helped to hone that investment thesis. But there must have been more than that. There must have been something that you felt uncomfortable about investing in. It wasn't just the deals coming to you, it was the fact that some of the deals that you were doing didn't seem to fit in with your longer-term thesis. Yes. I'm not sure you probably give us too much credit in how scientific, forgive the pun, that was. But for example, we don't do anything B to C, which again, any longer, any any longer, longer. which of course excludes all of these, you know, brands and retail and lots of e-commerce and that kind of thing. And there's several reasons, actually. One, which I think you've alluded to, Peter, is there was no particular expertise or insight within REN to evaluate those deals. Two, the market, particularly in London for early stage investors, is saturated with investors who are expert in assessing those kinds of deals and can add considerable value. They know how to do distribution for those kinds of companies. They know how to bring the right kinds of investors in, they know how to do marketing, all of those things. And the third reason is that, I accept that this is a generalization, by and large, those companies are really execution plays and you're betting more often than not really on the strength of their marketing expertise, advertising expertise, you know, what kind of distribution channels they end up with. It's all really that side of things. And We feel that that is a very difficult thing to evaluate. You know, we are uncomfortable with businesses where to some degree success is dependent upon, all businesses success to some degree is dependent on the quality of the sales force. But, you know, when it's really all about have you got the best sales guys and the product is almost secondary, that makes us uncomfortable. And then some businesses are just dependent upon trend and fashion and what's the thing right now in all kinds of sectors. And that, again, we found very ephemeral, very difficult to assess. But that shouldn't put anybody else off, of course. There are plenty of examples of successful journeys funded by angels in fields that either you or I wouldn't touch. Exactly. And, you know, I look at the Jam Jar guys Mm. who are the ex-innocent founders But again, I think a common theme is there is an insight there. There's an expertise there. Mm, Those guys know how to develop a brand. And before we go on to some specific examples and also how you got involved with the journeys of the entrepreneurs, you're more stage agnostic than I am. So you'll invest at a later stage. That's absolutely true, Peter. We have invested right from first seed. University spin-outs are a great example of that. I would say that the latest we'll go into a company is probably Series B. Right. But anywhere along 
that spectrum. Ren is completely comfortable with, I'm just looking for good value deals. And in terms of a new investment, I think the lowest pre-money investment we've made in a company is around three or 400,000 pre-money. And the highest pre-money we've invested at in a new company is 125 million. Yes, pre-money. that's a huge range. So that's it? a huge yeah. range. So yes, I don't get hung up about stage. Yeah, good. Right, let's talk about one or two successes and then a few failures. Now, obviously, you can only say what you, what you want to say, but can we talk perhaps about the successful exit you had last year? Yes. So the exit was a company called Monica Healthcare. It was originally a spin-out from the University of Nottingham about possibly a dozen years ago even. I mean, it, it had had a long journey. So the company exited in spring 2017. We first invested in mid-2014. It was a very good exit. Um, in fact, within the EIS three-year holding period. Hence not getting the reliefs. <laughs> hence not getting the reliefs, but you know that's fine with me. The things I'd like to pick out about that company, so one is generic about the journeys of these particularly science-based companies. And the second one is about med tech, actually. I don't know how if that's a bit too niche, but I think it's worth saying. Monica, in my view, had a quite a typical journey for that kind of company. It is a company whose main product is a wireless fetal monitor for women in labor. So this was a kind of dusty corner where the incumbent technology was very old Doppler sensors kind of invented in the 60s or even earlier, very uncomfortable. And this is a completely digital wireless sensor, which is kind of stuck on the lady's abdomen and allows a laboring mother complete freedom of movement and, mm. and just, just a lot more comfortable. And it, the company was sold to GE Healthcare. So the generic point that I think is worth drawing out is that, again, without giving away sort of anything confidential, it was a long journey. It was version three of their product, I think, that eventually really had that good product market fit. And I think that's very typical, especially for a medical device and often in other areas. I think for any hardware, actually, I don't think it's restricted to medical devices. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a hardware company that nailed product market fit with version one. I think Monica was version three. And, of course, that's important for investors to know that when you see a business plan, think about what the funding journey and financing journey might look like to actually get to, because they'll present you with a plan that's basically version one and sales. Takes off yeah. rapidly. So yes. re rewrite or recast that plan with, you know, version one, failure, version two, failure, version three, hooray. These are product failures, of course, not company failures. Correct. Yes, yeah. You know, so ask yourself and ask the management team, what does the uh, business plan look like in that scenario? Because that's a lot more mm. realistic scenario. And that speaks to time as well. So I think that for Monica... Again, we were a relatively later investor in that company, but I think for Monica, version one of the product came out probably five or six years in, and maybe four or five years in. And version three, the version that eventually you know, really took off, was 
seven or eight years in. Mm. So it gives the audience some sense of, of timelines. And one of the things, again, that's very typical that comes out of that is the company had, you know, a checkered funding history. There were restructurings of cap table, refinancing, you know, valuation. New CEO? Or? No, Carl was there the, the whole, whole time. way. Yeah, Carl was there the whole way. And or from very early on. And again, a typical thing for a university spin out, the successful CEO was not the academic founder, which again is no disrespect to academic founders. And Monica had a superb academic founder, has a superb academic founder, but the person to really drive the business was a much more commercially focused person. And so, you know, these, you know, down rounds and restructuring and all of those things, they are part of the journey. Mm. I think people shouldn't be afraid of them. And there's also an opportunity for value. So we came in in 2014 at a time when the cap table was restructured and that drove our return. We made a much higher return than the investors who'd been with it from the beginning. And that's just a fact. So again, it's another one of the reasons why Ren is stage agnostic because we're not afraid at all of those situations. I'll often joke in the pub, I love a down round. Some uh, VC investor pulled a 100x down round on us last year and I was weirdly delighted. And you I, contributed then as you had done before. I, Ren now owns far more of that company than we ever did before. And I think it's going to be a great company. And before moving on to failures, I think there's something else you want to talk about medtech. I did. And it's just to say that, and I'm really talking about medical device companies and diagnostic companies in particular here and not talking about therapeutics, which is they find market penetration very difficult as independent companies. And my observation is that most of these companies either try and do distribution themselves, which is very expensive, or they try and use independent distributors. My observation is that those strategies fail far more often than they succeed. And I generally encourage my medical device and diagnostic companies to pursue a therapeutic type of strategy, which is to partner with an incumbent that worked beautifully for Monica Healthcare. So Monica had a distribution agreement with GE and the success of that distribution agreement was, as far as I can see from the outside, the catalyst for the acquisition. And that I think is a better strategy than really trying to penetrate these markets themselves. I mean, these device and diagnostic markets generally are patrolled by massive bear moths and you are better off getting in bed in some way with one of them, whether it's a JV, distribution agreement, something of that nature is much more likely to A, get you actual commercial penetration and B, your front of mind then for an exit. Good, yeah, JV being joint venture. Okay, let's talk about failures. Now, we've had a few failures together, but let's talk about that generically. It's often about the people and it's often about this nebulous concept of product market fit. I mean, some of this is from, you know, business 101, 
but it's time and again the case that the management team, the investors as well, have not worked hard enough with listening to the market and researching the market and finding out exactly what customers really want. And it's not just what they want, because again, if you talk about something, for example, in a scientific or medical field, aspirationally, a customer, they want marvelous things. They want better results. They want more efficiency. They want just better science. I mean, in the generic sense, and they want that and that's rational. But what you will then find when you dig much more deeply and get to a granular level is what they want and what they can actually buy are two different things. And as a startup, what you care about is the thing that you can make or sell or provide that can actually be bought. So you need to understand supply chains. You need to understand decision-making processes. You need to understand budgets. And it's in that, it's in the weeds, it's in the nitty gritty, I think, where product market fit actually goes wrong. Whether it's not understanding NHS supply chains or budgetary pressures. So a very typical example from the medical field would be you are asking department A in a hospital or other healthcare provider to increase their expenditure so that actually department C down the road gets the saving or the efficiency or the other benefit. That is a complex, multi-stakeholder, multi-level sell. And you need to be very sophisticated to get that right. And too often that research, that understanding, that thinking just isn't there. And I've seen that be a meaningful contributory cause to failure on many an occasion. But you've invested in businesses even though probably you could have foreseen that, couldn't you? Now you're really putting me on the spot. Yes. Or maybe this is part of the learning journey. It's part of the learning. As I get older and greyer and, as my wife would say, a lot bolder, I am warier of those things. It's one of the reasons why I'm very strong about wanting, again, for example, in life sciences, experienced management teams. I want a CEO or a management team that have actually served their 10 or 15 years penance in a big device corporation or big farmer or whatever it might be, and who know how to distribute these products and they know where the banana skins are in selling to the NHS or Kaiser in America or whatever it might be. And they understand reimbursement Again, talking about life sciences, reimbursement, who pays and why will they pay? It is of crucial importance. And actually, understanding of payers in healthcare systems is generally very much lacking in founders of life science companies. They understand payers at a very superficial level, but they don't really, in fact, understand it at all. And so, yeah, as you get older, you get um, more experienced, you get where you have more understanding and you are more cautious about those things. But we've certainly made those mistakes. And it's not just in life sciences, that product market fit element is crucial. You know, I'm thinking of one failure that you and I had together that 
actually, Ren was always quite reticent about investing in and finally took the plunge. And I was always concerned that there were so many stakeholders that would need convincing about this product, no matter how good it was, that it was going to be tough and just vested interests. I mean, I never underestimate the power of vested interests. Mm. People just want to protect the business that they have. And if you're an incumbent in the market, you will have tools to do that. And you have the ability, to some degree, to block better products. Mm. Okay, before we go on and just finalise with a few tips for entrepreneurs and angels, you mentioned age a few moments ago. Now, I know that you're just turned 40, you've got a young family. What are you going to be doing in 10 or even 20 years' time? I have no idea is the most honest answer to that question. I certainly am not done with Wren yet, that's for sure. I've enjoyed changing careers entirely. And I do say to myself that I've got one more entirely new career in me. Good. Maybe a teacher, maybe an academic. I'm not sure either of those institutions would have me, but my biggest thrill in Wren is, aside from meeting and interacting with the most phenomenal people, founders, fellow investors, etc., is the sheer thrill of learning something new from the bottom up. And I'd like to do that one more time. Excellent. So, Rajat, you mentioned that for angels, one of the most important things to do is just grasp the nettle and invest. That was great. Have you got two or three tips for entrepreneurs? I think I've got at least one, and it is this. Entrepreneurs need to be able to absolutely clearly elucidate and understand their market. And what I mean by that is an entrepreneur needs to be able to tell me who's going to buy their product, how are they going to buy it, and why. And that, for me, will show or not show whether they've really done that granular research that we were talking about, particularly we were talking about it in a life sciences context, but it applies across the board. And you'd be surprised, actually, how many entrepreneurs really stumble with that because they're all about their focus is the product, their focus is their technology, their focus is not the customer. And a technology without customers is just a technology, it's not a business. Yes, I mean, there are times where that is worked out. So I would invest even if that wasn't completely defined because they'll work it out during that initial journey. And secondly, there are, of course, occasions where the pivot has to occur because of getting to the market didn't work. So I personally wouldn't have that so strong as you seem to. That's fair enough. Because we're different. Yes. <laughs> Excellent, Rajat. Well, this has been really good spending some time with you. I've really enjoyed it. I, you know, your friendship and the knowledge I've got from you over the years. May that continue forever. Here, here. Thanks for listening to another Investor Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investorinvestor.com, or via a number of online podcast platforms. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content. <laughs>